I'm really happy to uh, be sharing with you guys this morning. I found out that I would be teaching you, not 2 through K. I was supposed to be teaching 2 through K, the toddlers. I found out I will not be teaching toddlers. I will be teaching big church. Um, About, what, that must have been about 8.45, so about a half hour before first service started. Uh, Sarah, Sarah and I, we were, we were running around the kids' wing trying to get everything figured out because we were pretty understaffed um, in the kids' wing. And so we're trying to figure out, you know, how are we going to position, you know, our, the volunteers that we do have to be the most efficient, to get the most done, to, you know, do the most damage control. And then I see Sarah, we're walking out of the kids' wing, and she just turns around and looks at me. And Sarah has this look that when I see it, I go, something is very wrong. She looks at me, she turns to me, and she looks at me, and I was like, oh no. She goes, we have to go upstairs right now. And I'm like, great, let's put out another fire. This will be fun. So we go up to Zav's office, and I'm like, wait, why are we going to Zav's office? Uh-oh. So we go up there, and he's laying down on the couch, and he's like, I got to go home. And I'm like, cool, man, let's, let's roll. So I found out really soon before first service, and we had a few hiccups. I had a passage that is in Matthew that I, or in John, that I mislabeled as Matthew, so I started reading a Bible verse that had nothing to do with anything. It had to do with, like, something else, and I'm like, that's not where we want to go. So I think, I think we've ironed out most of the hiccups in first service. That's kind of the nice thing about having multiple services. You kind of just, like, if anything goes wrong, you kind of just let it, let that be first service, let it be what it is, and then second service is like, okay, round two. So, uh, but that said, with all the disclaimers, still, um, with this shorter notice, I will ask that you bear with me. Um, so this morning, we're talking about something that uh, we've actually been going through uh, at the Story Youth, uh, which is a series that we kicked off a few weeks ago called Who is Jesus? And so what we've been doing every week is we've kind of been surveying the Gospels and kind of looking at the life and highlight reels and key events and key passages on the life of Jesus. And so each week we kind of pose a question, and this week, the week that I'll I'll be teaching on from from a few weeks ago in youth, we asked the question of what did Jesus say? More specifically, we asked what did Jesus say about himself? And so when Zab was in Peru, I actually taught this at the college group, so if you go to college group, I apologize, you have to listen to this again. So you better, you know, fill in all the notes you missed from last week or something, I don't know. Um, So we've been asking this question of what did Jesus say about himself, and why does that matter? And so why why do we need to look at how Jesus self-identifies? So we're going to talk about that this morning. And so I want to first turn to the book of Luke. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn to the book of Luke chapter 2, and we'll pick it up in verse 41. If you don't have a Bible, you can take out your iPhone or Android or whatever it is you use and hit up the Uversion app or whatever Bible app you use. I actually don't know if there's more than one. Is there more than one? Oh, is there? There's always an app for like everything. So I don't know. Uversion's kind of kind of the ringleader there. But whatever app you use, you can open it or if you could just Google Luke chapter 241. So we'll turn there, and then I'm going to pray real quick, and then we'll get into the word. Lord, I just thank you um, for how faithful you are. God, I thank you um, that even when we're understaffed on days like today when Zav's homesick and we're not totally sure what to do, God, you still have a plan for your church here this morning. And so, God, I ask uh, that you would speak through me, that your spirit would speak through these words um, from your word, God, and that you would reach hearts, that you would touch hearts. 
God, I am limited. I am second. Lord, you are unlimited. You are first. And so, God, I ask that um, your word today would just really permeate the hearts of everybody gathered here this morning. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you that you first loved us. And in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, yeah, thinking about what Jesus said about himself, to look at this, we're actually going to go to the first recorded evidence of Jesus speaking in general. Uh, so this is Luke chapter 2, and in 41, uh, some, of, some of your uh, Bible versions will have, like, little headers. This one says, the boy Jesus in the temple. And if you grew up going to church, this is probably a story you're fairly familiar with. So we'll start in verse 41 and read down through 52. It says, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the leaders, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So at the beginning of our series, uh, when we kicked this off at youth, we talked about how Jesus didn't really belong to his parents on a biological level the same way a typical child would. Uh, because when we talked about the incarnation, the word became flesh, uh, the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary, and by that uh, supernatural work, uh, she conceived Jesus in her womb. So that was the work of God. So God was literally Jesus' father. He was the son of God. And so here in this passage, it's really interesting because even as a 12-year-old, as young as 12 years old, Jesus already exhibits this understanding that Mary brings to him. She comes to him and she says, your father and I were looking for you. And he says, why were you looking for me? Did you not know I must be in my father's house? So she's saying, your father and I, meaning Joseph, and Jesus says, no, 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 my father, God, I'm in his house. I'm with my father. I also think it's kind of funny that he just like straight up talks back to his mom and it says that she treasured these things in her heart. <laughs> my mom is watching this right now and I can just, I'll just say to my mom, if I talk back to her like that, it would not go well for me. Um, but it's just really funny to look at uh, Jesus at, at such a young age. Uh, I know, you know, the 12-year-olds that I hang out with and, and play dodgeball with up in the kids' wing on Sundays— they don't really seem to have this kind of wisdom, you know, and that's, those are kind of big shoes to fill, so I'm not going to hold it against them. But there's something really special that Jesus is exhibiting at such a young age. He understands where his true sonship is. He understands what his real identity is. And so Jesus is making this proclamation of, God is my Father. And what we're going to look at that's, that's really interesting is how God the Father, later on, he backs this up. And so we're going to look at that. So flip forward or excuse me, flip backward two books to Matthew. And we're going to go to Matthew 3, pick it up in verse 13. Matthew 3, verses 13 
through 17. So this uh, passage here, starting in verse 13, this is the baptism of Jesus. So we've already heard Jesus say, as a young boy, God is my father. And now what we're going to do is we're going to look at the baptism of Jesus. We're fast-forwarding a few years. Jesus is nearing the age of 30. He's coming up right on the uh, beginning of what's referred to as his earthly ministry, which is when he walked around healing, teaching, preaching. Uh, Jesus didn't actually do that his entire life. He did that during a concentrated period of time referred to as his earthly ministry, which started with his baptism and then ended with his ascension into heaven after being crucified and rising again. So, at the beginning of his earthly ministry, we have him here about to be baptized. So, starting in verse 13, it says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So we have this exchange. We have this exchange where God the Son is stepping into the water to be baptized by John. He comes up. And then it says that the Holy Spirit manifested as a dove and and descended on him and and sort of marked him in a symbolic way, landed on him, rested on him. And then it says that the heavens were opened. And the, the text doesn't explicitly tell us if this was like a physical opening or if it was like a metaphysical or like symbolic. We don't know if God just like pulled a Doctor Strange and tore a hole in the space time continuum and just like opened the sky literally. But what it does say is that the heavens were open to Jesus. And so God the Father speaks down from heaven and he says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So we have that. And then we have the manifestation of the Holy Spirit of God as a dove marking Jesus. And so when Jesus says, God is my father as a 12-year-old boy, we then fast forward to this event where God the Father says, Jesus is my son, and here's a sign. Here's a, here's a little bird. Here's a sign. He validates what Jesus has already said about himself. And so we have this exchange of the triune God. We have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're all coming together and declaring the lordship of Jesus with whoever else was, was present at the baptism. I imagine that was quite an event to, to witness. So Jesus says, as a boy, God is my father. God the Father now says, Jesus is my son. And that is what started his earthly ministry. Talk about a grand opening. That's a big one. So we're going to go back to Luke. We're just kind of, you know, ping-ponging back and forth between Matthew and Luke. We're going to go back to Luke and open up to chapter 4. Let's go to Luke chapter 4. And we will start in verse 14. So in Luke 4, 14, this is not long after the baptism, by the way. So Jesus has been baptized, his earthly ministry has begun, and now he is in the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth. So in verse 14 it says, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went throughout all the land, throughout all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom— he went, turn the page, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. 
The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are being oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So what's interesting about Nazareth, it's a small town, and it's safe to assume that a lot of those people who were in that synagogue, they knew Jesus because they had watched him grow up. A lot of historians agree that Nazareth could have had about as many as 20,000 people. Another small town I can think of that has about 20,000 people is this one, Ashland, Oregon. I've only lived here for like a year and a half, maybe a little bit more. Has anybody here lived here longer than a year and a half? Two years. Three. Five? A decade. So we could keep going. Here's the, here's the thing. Here's the point I'm trying to get at. I've only lived here for a year and a half, and already this feels like such a tightly knit community. I pulled up to a red light one day, and I looked at the car next to me, and I was like, oh, they work at the, at the place I grocery shop at. They checked out my groceries literally yesterday. I'm just like, that's just the kind of thing that you encounter in Ashland. And so the, after only a year and a half, I already, I see and recognize so many people I know just walking around being around town. So I can imagine if I had like been born and raised here in my 23 years, it would probably be even more so. And so I imagine that that was probably similar to what life was like for Jesus growing up in such a small town. So everybody kind of knows everybody. And so when Jesus goes to the synagogue and he opens this scroll, as was the custom, and he starts reading Isaiah, and he goes, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to recover the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he stands up, and everyone is watching him, going, what is gonna, what's gonna happen here? And he basically says to them, I'm the guy this text is talking about. Oof. Because nobody had ever done that before, that we know of. Nobody had, had really stepped up to the plate in that sense and said, this is me. Jesus is saying, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. The Spirit of the Lord has marked me. I am going to proclaim good news to the poor. I am going to proclaim liberty to the captives. I am going to give the blind their sight back. The year of the Lord's favor is now. And Jesus says that. He says, I am the sent one of God. We'll go forward just a little bit. Um, John 14. Just kind of laying it out here. I forgot to mention that, that the style in which we're kind of approaching Scripture is a little different than how Zav usually does it. He usually goes kind of verse by verse, really thorough. We're kind of taking a different approach. We're kind of just metaphorically skipping a rock across a pond, and we're just going to land strategically on these different uh, events and recordings of, of the words of Jesus. So thank you for bearing with me. We're doing a lot of Bible turning. You guys are doing amazing. So John chapter 14. Verses 6 through 7. John 14, 6 through 7. You're probably familiar with this verse if you grew up in the church. Verse 6, it says, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So, so far, we've got Jesus as a boy saying, 
God is my father. We have the event at his baptism where God the Father says, Jesus is my son, and validates all of that. Then we have Jesus saying, I am the sent one of God, when he reads Isaiah 61 in the synagogue. And then in John 14, he says, I am the only way to God. So I am the son of God, God is my father, I am the sent one of God, and I am the only way to God. We're going to go to Matthew 16. We're almost there, guys. Matthew 16, 13. There's this exchange that he has with his disciples. Matthew 16, verse 13. He says this. If I can, if I can flip back in time. Let's see. Nope, that's Malachi. We went too far back. Okay. If you hit Malachi, you've gone way too far. Matthew 16, 13. And I'm still not there, so we're just gonna, we're just, I'm just going to keep talking until I get there. Uh, it says, Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So a few things that, that we can look at here. Uh, we know from be, uh, looking at other areas in the gospel that Jesus actually has the ability, being God, being divine, he has the ability to know people's thoughts before they're spoken. Um, in Luke 5.22 and in Luke 9.47, these are both instances where Jesus sees the Pharisees or religious leaders, and he discerns their thoughts without them actually speaking them, and then he calls them out on it. He goes, why do you doubt these things about me? Why do you have these things in your heart? I'm trying to imagine what that would be like if I had a, a buddy who not only could read my mind, but then put me on blast in front of everybody for it. Like, that's just, like, unthinkably crazy. And so we know that Jesus has this, this ability to discern our thoughts. And so when Jesus asks his disciples, what are the other people saying about me? It's safe to assume that Jesus isn't doing that to learn new information. Jesus is asking them these questions that he already knows the answers to, as a way to kind of guide them. Jesus is kind of prodding them. He's prompting them. He's calling them forward. He's guiding them along in their path of deciding for themselves who the Son of Man is. He's not asking to learn new information. He's asking for their sake. And so his disciples, they reply. They say, some say you're Elijah. Some say you're a prophet. Some say you're this or that. And then he gets even more specific, and he points it back at them, and he says, who do you say I am? You who have raised the dead with me. You who watched me walk on water. You guys who watched me heal people of all sorts of sicknesses. Take a stand. Who do you say I am? And Peter, bless his heart, he's just like such a ready-shoot-aim character. I love him. He speaks up first, and he goes, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Peter took a shot, and he scored. It was great. He got it right. And so he probably replied with what the rest of the disciples were thinking, but he was, he was the first person to say, I believe that you are who you say you are. And so why is, why is this important to look at? Why do we, why do we lay all this out on the table and, and survey all of these things? Because another thing to keep in mind is that there was another group of people who saw a lot of the same things that Jesus did and said. They saw a lot of the same things that the disciples saw. And those were the Pharisees and the religious leaders. So what did they say about God? Who did they say he was? Um, well, they weren't, spoiler alert, they weren't very nice about it. They were not very nice about what they said to Jesus. They said he was an illegitimate child born of a prostitute, John eight forty one. 
They said that he was demon-possessed and that he performed his miracles by the power of Satan, Matthew 9.34. They denied the seemingly undeniable. So we have two very different sides of the coin here. We have disciples who say, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then we have the Pharisees who say, you're an illegitimate child, and by the way, you're demon-possessed. Like, hot take. Um, so when we, when we look at this, we have to understand, when we're deciding for ourselves— when, when we read that text that says, who do you say I am? And we think, who do I say that Jesus is? There's something that we have to accept and admit. There is no middle ground when it comes to deciding who Jesus is. And this is where our culture gets it so wrong. Because growing up in the church, with the perspective of believing that Jesus is my personal Lord and Savior, I have then used that as a backdrop and watched how other people talk about Jesus. What do other people in the real world, right— what, do, what is everybody else saying about Jesus? People get it. They, they get close. Some of them get close, but a lot of people just get it so wrong because they'll say nice things about Jesus. I have heard so many people say, Jesus was a good teacher. Jesus was a wise rabbi, or Jesus had a lot of really great principles for life, or he had a lot of really good ideas, even though some of them were kind of weird or didn't really make sense. But like, Jesus was a good guy. And then some people, like, they admit in the, in the passage of scripture, some people like kind of dip their toes in the supernatural water, right? And they say, oh, he was a prophet. So like maybe there's something divine there. But people will say every nice thing that they can about Jesus without actually acknowledging his divinity and his title as the son of God, our personal Lord and Savior, the propitiation for our sins, the sent one of God and only way to God. Because that's exclusive and it's narrow. Jesus says, narrow is the road that leads to eternal life. The people who find it are few. Because the path that you have to get, that you have to get on, that you have to walk down in order to declare that Jesus is the actual Son of God is a very narrow and very exclusive road. And so Jesus cannot just simply be a good teacher. Jesus can't just be a rabbi. He can't just be a good person. Because good good people, good teachers, don't get crucified. They just don't. That was a punishment. That was an execution in all areas that were, you know, rule, in, in Roman rule, where that thing, kind of thing was practiced. That was reserved for the worst of the worst of the worst. That was the bottom of the barrel. And so when Jesus accepted his fate, Philippians 2 talks about how even though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, Another thing that, another way of interpreting that is a thing to be held on to, to be hoarded, to be, to be held over people, to be like militantly enforced. It says it, it was not, equality with God was not a thing to be grasped. It says he, he gave it up. He emptied himself and being found in human likeness, it says that he became obedient to the point of death. And I like this emphasis that it puts on there. It says even death on a cross. Not just obedient to death. It, it makes the point to let you know that even death on a cross. That's what he accepted. And so it wasn't just the punishment that Jesus accepted when he went to the cross. Another thing that he was taking on was he was allowing people to completely get his identity so wrong. He accepted that mislabeling. Jesus didn't force his lordship onto the people that he encountered. What he did do 
was he set a bunch of evidence in front of them. Kind of like how we've just kind of laid a lot of things out on the table and just kind of looked at it from a sort of bird's eye view this morning. Jesus did similar things. He walked on water. He made a gold fish, or a gold coin appear in the fish's mouth so that Peter could pay his taxes. That's not a Mad Lib. That's a true story. Jesus did that. He raised people from the dead. He cast out demons. He did all of these works. And then he allowed people to come to the conclusion that he was Lord for themselves. And here's the thing. The people who did acknowledge his lordship, they didn't do it perfectly. Peter was the first person to speak up and say, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. He was also the first person to completely betray, not betray, but deny and kind of just like step away from Jesus when he went on trial before his uh, crucifixion. And we'll come back to that in a moment. But the, the main question that, that we're asking this morning is why is it important to look at what Jesus says about himself? And so I have a few thoughts, two reasons. You can write them down if you want to. Uh, Number one, it's important to look at what Jesus says about himself because the way a person identifies and introduces themselves sets a precedent for how other people will address and interact with them. Long sentence. What that means in plain English is that think about this in terms of like getting to know somebody, right? When you first meet someone, the first thing that you do is you usually extend a hand, you say, hi, my name is, you tell them your name. You introduce yourself on the most basic level that is possible. You say, hi, I'm, and what you're doing is you are telling them your name, so now that they know what to call you, they know how to address you. If you want to take it to the next level, you might tell them the basics about yourself. You might tell them, this is where I come from, this is what I like, this is what I don't like. You're, you're just telling them things about yourself. And so maybe from there, they can build a relationship with you because they can talk to you, find out what they have in common with you, find out what they don't have in common with you. What you're doing when you introduce yourself and you're telling people about yourself is you're actually creating avenue for a relationship with that person. Because now they have things that they can talk to you about. And so conversation gets going, right? A lot of, like, think about all all of your friendships, your deepest, lasting, longest-running friendships. A lot of those started with just a conversation of, like, hi, I'm so-and-so, and then the rest is history. And so when Jesus, he does the same thing. When Jesus tells us who he is, when he proclaims that he is Lord, what he's actually doing is he's creating an opportunity and giving an invitation for us to do that with him. For us to step in line with him and say, yes, I believe you are who you say you are. And so that's number one, reason number one why it's important to look at what Jesus says about himself. Number two, Why is it important to look at what Jesus says about himself? Reason number two, Jesus' words are just as eternal as he is. Matthew 24, 35, Jesus says explicitly, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And so, oh, lost my spot in my notes. Where'd we go? There we go. Jesus is alive today, right? And so that question of who do you say I am, given what we just read in Matthew 24, 35, if the words of Jesus don't pass away, if they're eternal— then that question, who do you say I am, that's just as alive as Jesus is. And so we come back to that. We, we think about who do you say I am. That's pointed at all of us. That's not just the disciples. That question by a living God to living beings of who do you say I am is a living and active invitation into relationship with the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the way that you answer that question will determine the course of your entire life. The way that you answer that question is going to determine every decision that you make. Because if you answer that Jesus is Lord, 
That's not something that you do once, by the way. It may seem like it, but it's not. It's not a one-time thing. Every decision that we in turn make is a reflection of the degree to which we believe that about Jesus. So I have a few closing questions for us today. Question number one, do you believe Jesus is who he says he is? And if so, does your life reflect what you believe? It's a pretty loaded question, I know. And question two, are there any areas in your life that don't line up with what you believe about Jesus? Because when we put our faith in Jesus as Lord, we're actually placing him as Lord over our life. You've probably heard people say, Jesus is my personal Lord and Savior, or Jesus is Lord over my life. Or maybe they combine the two and they say, Jesus is the personal Lord and Savior of my life. It's very personal. It's very involved. A few weeks ago at the story, when, at the story Youth, when we, uh, when we kicked off the series, we talked about what it means to follow Jesus. And so we talked about it in like physical, real, actual terms of following somebody. Uh, I was actually just out on a camping trip with some of my buddies this weekend, and we were hiking some pretty narrow trails. And I just like... I don't really like to lead the pack. I'll just kind of go where somebody else has already stepped just to make sure that, like, my path is good. So I'm like, okay, their left foot goes there. I'm going to go there. They go there. I go there. And so when you're following somebody, you're actually allowing them to kind of set the course for where you go. So they're actually calling the shots a little bit more than you are. You can decide whether you want to step or not, but if you are committed to following somebody in, like, a real, we'll say, hiking sense— you're trusting, okay, this person probably knows the path a little bit better than I do, so I'm going to allow them to kind of call the shots on where I go. And so I want to ask, are there any areas of our lives as followers of Jesus, are there any areas in our lives that just don't like fully line up with what we believe about Jesus? Are there any areas in our lives where we're not fully in step? And if you answered yes, I have really good news for you. The people who were closest to Jesus, his disciples, the people who were his best friends, even they didn't do it perfectly. Like, they saw Jesus face to face. We're still waiting on that one, right? But they actually saw Jesus in the flesh, face to face. They could talk with him audibly, and they were the closest human beings that there were to Jesus at that time. And so, even they didn't get it right. And Peter, like we said, he was the first person to say, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he was the first person to say, I don't know him. Three times. Three times he said, I don't know him. And so there's this interesting uh, exchange between Jesus and Peter after the resurrection, or after the crucifixion and resurrection. So the final passage that we'll go to is John chapter 21. You guys are, you guys are doing amazing. John chapter 21. And if you turn to Acts like I just did, you went way too far. So back up. John chapter 21. And we'll start in verse 15. So this is after Jesus has died and risen again. Jesus says, or the text says, and when they had finished breakfast, I love that they're just eating breakfast. That's just a funny little perspective. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, I, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, Son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. What's interesting is that for every time that Peter denied Jesus, Jesus instructs him. 
So Jesus hits him with the, with the, three, the three Peter, the question. He's like, yeah, Peter, remember these? Remember when you did this? Um, but he, he provides instruction and, like, loving correct, uh, correction to Peter. It's not punishment, and it's not abandonment. It's not like Jesus got up from the dead and was just like, well, that was a rough ride. I'm out. Peace. No, he actually walked with his disciples after his resurrection, and he sat down with Peter, and for every time that Peter had wronged him, Jesus lovingly corrected him because there was relationship there. They had walked down that avenue of who do you say I am, and Peter did not walk it perfectly, not even close. Peter said, he confessed with his mouth, he said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, and then his actions later kind of put that in question. And so Peter didn't do it perfectly, but Jesus, being rich in grace, abounding in steadfast love, slow to anger, like we read about in the Psalms, Jesus sat him down, and he corrected him lovingly. So today, wherever you're at with what you believe about Jesus, my message for you is pretty simple. Jesus is who he says he is, and Jesus wants you. That's the heartbeat of the gospel. That is the entire reason why Jesus died and rose again. The most popular verse in the Bible is John 3.16. I think, personally, I think it's the most popular verse in the Bible because it sums up the entirety of God's redemptive plan in one sentence. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him, whoever answers that question of who do you say I am, right, shall not perish but have eternal life. And just a side note, that eternal life doesn't start when you die. It doesn't say that whoever believes in him will go to heaven when they die. It says they will have eternal life. And when you believe in him, that eternal life starts now. <laughs> Hallelujah. And so no matter what all of us in this room believe or don't believe about Jesus, wherever you land on the spectrum of belief in the person and work of Jesus, one thing that we do all have in common here is that we all need him. All of us. We all share an equal need to be saved from, from two things. One, from ourselves— from the evil that's in here, and secondly, from the evil that's out there. Because we are very messed up people living in a very messed up world. We deal with things like sickness. Zav is, bless his heart, he's going through that right now. We, we live in a broken world that needs a savior, and we are broken people who need saviors. And so that, that question of, who do you say I am? If Jesus is your Lord— not only if Jesus is Lord, but if, but if, if Jesus is your Lord, if, if that becomes personalized in your life, you actually have a perfect person in your life who cares about you, who you can offload all your anxieties onto. 1 Peter 5-7 tells us that. If Jesus is your Lord, he can actually restore the way that you view yourself, your perception of yourself. Psalm 139-14 says that you are fearfully and wonderfully made, and your frame was not hidden from him when you were being made in secret. If Jesus is Lord— then he can heal your mind and, from, and your heart from all the trauma that you've experienced in the last year. I'm living proof of that. If Jesus is Lord, he can heal your mind and your heart of the trauma you experienced last week, when you were a child, it, it, when you were an adolescent, when, wherever. If Jesus is your Lord, then he's going to redeem your own humanity, the things that are wrong with you, and he's going to redeem the things, the external circumstances that we don't have any control over. He's going to redeem those things in our lives. It's a good place for an amen. 
If Jesus is your Lord, he's going to surround you and he's going to insulate you and be near to you when you're grieving and heartbroken. Psalm 34, 18 says that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. If Jesus is your Lord, all things are possible through him, Matthew 19, 26. And so what we're going to do now, Matt's going to come up and play, and I really want all of us, wherever you land, first off, if you don't know who Jesus is, you have an opportunity today to make the best decision you will ever make in your entire life. To entrust yourself to his care, to entrust yourself to the perfect God-man who is still alive today, who died, so that not, only so that, not only so that you could be forgiven of your sin, but so that you can actually live a transformed life by the renewing of your mind. You have that opportunity today. I want to extend that to you. Jesus is alive, and Jesus wants you. And so, if you do believe in Jesus, and, and you're kind of having that, coming, coming to that point of like, you know, I have not been perfect. I have not totally lived my life perfectly in step with what Jesus would want. There's good news. There's good news for everybody in this room today. There's good news for everybody. I think that's why they call it the good news. There's good news for everybody. Is that Jesus can have that conversation with you, probably similar to how he had that conversation with Peter. And so we can, you know, remain seated or stand or however you want to have that moment of kind of recalibration with Jesus. We're going we're gonna to have that, that time now.